Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. We are doing a string of podcasts in St. George. It's a November day, and it is raining for the first time in St. George since June. I'm in the home of Lisa Fry, and we have seven podcasts queued up, and I don't know if they'll be released in the order that we're recording them here, but our first podcast is with my friend Marion Bergen. Welcome to the podcast, Marion. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Um, will you, I'm going to let Marion introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell us about your family, um, um, kids, and just your connection to the LGBTQ space. Sure. Uh, for one thing, I've been married 64 years, and my husband is a convert to the church, and we are very orthodox. Uh, love the church. My husband's name is Alan, and he, from the beginning, wanted nothing more than to live every commandment that he was taught from his conversion. But at the the end of our childbearing, we found ourselves with nine children, three of them coming at the end, three boys, triplet boys, And that's where the real education of our family started, I think. When we had had three girls and three boys, life was pretty uh, orthodox, LDS. We did everything in the programs. But when these triplets came, kind of blew our family apart because at two, The one boy was in a near drowning and spent then till the rest of his life when he died at 38 in a wheelchair, fully 24-7, needing care. And believe it or not, the other two boys turned out to be gay. And that was a, a real challenge to our our view and our picture of what life was as LDS parents, but we have learned so much. I just want to skip to saying, in meeting with Richard, who's so kind and and tender on this subject, I presented to him three goals I have for being on this podcast. One point I want to make in my discussion is that being gay is not a choice. And I think many of our church members uh, are confused about that point. And I don't know, as my one son would say, why anyone would choose to be gay with all the heartache and pain and rejection and confusion that goes with that. Second point is that I would beg the parents of LGBT children not to reject them or harass them to get therapy, not to teach them that they are wrong or defective, because I believe that if you do this, you will live to regret it as I do. I regret it. I was there. And I regret it as deeply as anyone can regret. Three, 
I want to make the strong point that conversion or reparative therapy does not work and it does more harm to your children to teach them that they are not going to have your approval until they change the real message you are giving them then parents is that that child should not be they don't have the right to claim who they know they are at their core and you're denying them that right but furthermore you are denying yourself having the unique and beautiful experience of knowing that child and their end may come too soon as mine did with my Michael and I have deep regrets. So that's my introduction, Richard. It's a great introduction. We're just so honored to have you on the podcast. You are our oldest guest. Um, and the reason, and you kind of hinted at your age when you said you've been married 64 years. In December, I'll be 84. And so happy birthday next month at age Thank 84. You. And um, as I visited with Marion before the podcast, I recognized I'm with somebody who has a long view of the intersection of LDS and LGBTQ. And I've been in this space four years, and I'm just so honored and grateful to have Marion on the podcast as a therapist and and also as a mother of two LGBTQ sons and been on this road for decades. And her perspective and insight is the purpose of this podcast is to help us learn about our LGBTQ members. Would you just introduce your clinical um, expertise? Oh, well, you know, when I first got married and went to college, <laughs> they were pretty close together <laughs> since I met my husband at 17 and I was a freshman. At that time, I was going to be a writer, but uh, I got married young and as the opportunity presented itself to go back to school, I realized I couldn't write. I had nine children by then, <laughs> and I didn't ever get the uh, the real urge to anymore, but I really was interested in people, and I decided to uh, major in psychology, and, and I realized that uh, it gave me such an opportunity to study people and to learn about them and to help. And, and I am a helper. I've always been a was one that wanted to make a difference in people's lives and to get to know them in a real way. So I took a very, uh, because my husband gave me um, opportunity to be with really all the most famous psychologists of the world because of his position, his first job was teaching at Columbia University. He was younger than most of his students at that time. So I've known all, all the famous ones, and um, I, the birth of my triplets kept me from majoring in clinical psychology as I had planned, but I went for social work because I didn't want to be uh, a researcher, I wanted to work with people. And as it turned out, after hospital experience at Utah Valley Hospital, I went out into private practice 
fully expecting to work with adolescents, but moving more and more into personality disorders, uh, people uh, end of the line, um, psychotherapy needs, more than 50% of my clients would have been suicidal, um, some in and out of hospitals, and I took on the challenges and loved the challenges. But when it came to the therapy of LGBTs, I, I usually demurred and didn't feel um, prepared or confident in that, but I, I did tiptoe into it a little bit and learned all of the things that the church wanted us to understand. How many years were you in practice? 25 years. 25 years in Utah County? All of it in Utah County. All of it in Utah County. And I I started when I was 50. Wow. uh, Because I, my children were, were never uh, without, they never came home to an empty house. Let's just say that. And by the time I graduated with my social work degree, I I had five boys at home then, so I had grandchildren and married children by then, and and I worked till I was seventy five. I still miss it, loved it. Do you have any idea how many therapy sessions you did over twenty five years? <laughs> have you ever g- estimated it? I haven't. I, I it's, have not. It's estimated. thousands and thousands. But I'd say, you know, that like I said earlier, more than fifty percent of my clients were. Um, were suicidal, uh, either actively or with suicidal thoughts, and it is such a privilege. It's a sacred privilege to be allowed into the innermost thoughts and feelings of people who are hurting that badly. And I joined the ranks when it became obvious that our Michael and our Patrick were both gay men, boys at that time. And uh, just for our listeners, it's interesting that Marion's in this space of active LDS, parenting LGBTQ kids, and also have a clinical expertise and is touching on this at times with your clinical practice and your good husband, Alan, also. And I just hope everybody got that, that Marion has these six kids and then had these triplet boys, and I'm going to try to get this right. Um, there's Michael, who's gay, and there's Patrick, who's gay, and there's Daniel, who's straight. And Daniel has passed away, and, and Michael has passed away. And Daniel and Michael are identical twins. And wow. Is that right? You got that. (laughs) And I kind of drew some arrows before we started. But it's interesting, the identical twins, one's gay and one's straight, if that's correct. And the fraternal twin, Patrick, is gay. And so that just breaks some of the sort of maybe assumptions we might make. Um, It did for me. (laughs) It did for you. And so... um, Let's go to, you kind of, I love the way you introduce an overview of the things we're going to talk about. Um, This, let's talk about being LGBTQ is not a choice. Yes. um, I run into that all the time, that, that misconception. I think we, 
she'll say at some point being, in, if we may use the term gay lifestyle, moving into the gay lifestyle, is that allowed? Sure. I'm, I'm not very good at That's great. using proper um, verbiage, but, um, but that, would, that would be a choice. But I just, I know that it was not Michael or Patrick's choice. And we'll just, we'll talk about Michael because he was the activist and the outraged person that he was not going to be a mainstream person. And at eight or nine, after delightful childhood where he said prayers that just blew me away and brought tears to me. He changed. The light went out of his eyes. He became withdrawn and secretive, wouldn't talk to us, wouldn't do things with us, wouldn't tell us what was wrong. And that was the beginning of his realization that he wasn't going to fit in to the lifestyle he had been taught as the child of very active LDS parents. Alan was on the Sunday School General Board for years, and I was on a general church committee that evaluated the research on many subjects that the church does. It was a great honor for me, and uh, our children were very aware that the church was the core of our being and the meaning of life. And so Michael was very despairing. As, as I look back, I wish I had been a very different person for him. It's honest. Um, did I answer what you asked? You did. And it sounds like you came to learn um, that this is not a choice. Did you learn that through prayer? Did you learn that through just seeing it in your own sons that they couldn't not be gay? Or did, as you're aware of the clinical research during these years, where is the, is the, are the clinical, I'm not sure I'm using the right term clinical, or just the people that would understand the science behind sexual orientation. What kind of led you to understand this isn't a choice? Well, I thought it, I, I never really believed it, that people would choose to leave the mainstream. But what I believed was that, as the church teaches, the gender was born with them, but that many of the theories and the scholarly papers and books I read taught that there were developmental glitches along the way that would cause them to alter their natural sexual orientation. And, and I believed that because uh, I was trying to learn, and sure. that's what was given to me to learn. But as I, as I remembered Michael's developmental stages... It just, it didn't match up. And some of my daughters, probably the three of my daughters, were all ahead of me on that and, and for years said, we always knew Michael was gay from the time he was two years old. Wow. And um, 
and they were much more educated on the subject than me and more open, certainly. I had a denial system that that worked pretty well for years and, of course, kept Michael from being the honest kid that he needed to be because he loved the church. He loved the Book of Mormon and a very sad a picture in my mind is the ways he would spend hours and hours on his computer bring to us many pages of family history that he had researched for us and sometimes even left a pile of them on our doorstep like a cat leaving a, the heart of the mouse on on your doorstep and and as I look back on that, it tears my heart out because I didn't get it. Thanks for being so honest. I just, this is, a lot of our guests are pretty brave, and you're really brave to share some of the feelings you have. And um, I have to think, you know, we, you lost Michael at age 29. How old would Michael be now? He'd be 46. So he's been gone to be 46. I have to think. Have you felt any impressions from Michael from the other side? We have a very sacred story that I won't tell, but it involves his dad and the temple. Good. And Michael was a beautiful person. I can't wait to get to know him pretty tender and I think for every parent that's lost somebody they can walk in your shoes to some extent Mary and, and look look forward to those reunions tell our listeners just one of the things you loved about Michael I I loved his thirst for knowledge and he had certain writers that he loved he was always on the edge of of writing and music. And he loved it when, uh, like, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember. He, he, there was a woman writer that he loved. Did she write The Accidental Tourist? Anyway, she was a little far out for some people, but, but he would, he loved it when we joined him in things like his music and his um, books he read. He just read all the time. But he was a computer whiz. When he was in his teens, he he was on his decrepit uh, computer. He was composing music and writing it, in, in programming it. What a talented <laughs> and, man. And he just... He just never quit being creative, and, and his life was way too short. Yeah, our world, world's worse off losing someone like Michael and all the other ones we've yeah. lost. And Thank you. I think you bring honor to him talking about him. I've always loved to hear people talk about those that are gone. I think it brings honor to them and and helps us that we should talk about people that are gone. And I think that helps us heal to some extent. And you probably know that better than I do because you have this clinical training, I, which I don't have. I wanted to talk about, you know, I'm 
58, and I sort of, I had to figure out it wasn't a choice either. I mean, I kind of thought, I remember having a discussion with somebody close to me, and they said, well, the power of the atonement can change someone's sexual orientation. There's no limits on the power of the atonement. And um, how would That's you... That's a pretty enticing uh, idea, how, isn't it? It is. And so if I'm a 13-year-old gay kid and I'm hearing that, I, the burden's back on me to be straight. But how would you answer that question for our listeners? Because we do believe in the atonement. We do believe in the atonement, but we also believe so deeply in thy will be done. And in my experience, especially since I became a mama dragon, and the mama dragons are started out being LDS women who advocate and affirm their LGBT children. That's great. And as I met these wonderful, unique, and beautiful women, I felt very inferior because they got it long before I did, and they they understood that this is not their children's choice, and they taught me so much by by me hearing their stories and their their heartaches and their pain also. But the joy they take in seeing these children when they are affirmed and accepted for who they are, they blossom, they soar, they are happy, they achieve, they are healthy. All the things I missed out for Michael, but I'm going to add something here that Richard doesn't know. I have a marvelous grandson who had to leave Utah. He's the only, he was the only child of one of my daughters, and he is gay. And at first I thought that was a tragic thing, uh -huh. <laughs> but I've learned, I've grown. I'm fully on the other side, and this grandson, he, he went to law school in Wisconsin, he got involved in politics. He was a, a national debater in high school, just a really smart kid. And right now, just so you know how these marvelous young men can soar, he, he went from being a spokesman, political spokesman, uh, even though he's gay, but was for Governor Walker wow. of Wisconsin. Wow, that's great. And then he went to being what they derogatively called him the czar of charter schools in Wisconsin. Many people tried to block that. And now he's the chief of staff to the head of education in Wisconsin, and he's only in his 30s. And so I know what an affirmed gay young man can achieve. I love the word you use, Marion Soar. What a what a wonderful word to describe your hopes for a child or a grandchild. That seems like the same words our heavenly parents would want for us in our mortal existence. And and some people chart their own path the best way they can. And some it's outside of the church that I love and support and invite everybody to stay. But some people just leave that at the Savior's feet if they if their path perhaps is outside the church. 
Yes, and I, I just realized I soared away from your very question, <laughs> and, and I, I'd like to go back to, to the atonement question. To the atonement question. Please do. And you see, when, when we assume that the atonement can and will change the sexual orientation if there's enough faith, we are assuming that this is a tragedy that needs to be changed. And that's, I think, where we make our mistake. And until we get on the side of affirming, loving, just leading with love, we love our children. We're taught to love them. And until we get on that side and stop looking at it as a tragedy that has to be righted through the atonement, we will know that the grace of our Savior and Redeemer is every bit as much with that LGBT child as it is with anything of our own things that we are asking of him. Uh, did that make That sense? makes great sense, and I love that it's not a tragedy, and there's nothing to heal then because there's no tragedy here. It's not expected, <laughs> and it shatters our expectations, but... We can adjust and we'll be rewarded for it. Wished I had another chance. Well, I'm, pay, I'm paying penance if you can't tell. <laughs> you know, and I think there is a lot of regret. I feel, I just, I think your regret will, will identify with many of our listeners in the sense that we just wish we had known some things earlier in our life. And I have to think that'll all be made whole in the atonement that I believe in, the regret you feel and wanting to do some parts over again, I would think our doc, our heavenly parents would somehow want to heal you from that. How do you I feel about that. that? I love that. And and I, I am a scriptorian. I live and die by the scriptures. And I just say to myself, joy cometh in the morning. Now you brought we, tears to my eyes, Marion. Joy cometh in the morning. Might be the morning of the resurrection. But it'll come. I've told the story on this podcast about giving a blessing to a young man in our singles ward who was in Afghanistan and in that process bombed the Taliban and he knew he did what he was supposed to do, but he knew innocent lives were lost, mothers and children. And he asked for a blessing, and I thought, as I laid my hands on his head, I thought, there's no way I can reconcile this. And then the words came to my mind as I blessed this good man, no one's eternal possibilities have changed because yeah. of what happened in Afghanistan. And I have to think that the regret we feel or uh, someone who's we feel like their life is cut short, like your good son Michael, somehow... Those words apply to all of our situations because of the power of our doctrine and the power of what we believe in. Um, one of my LGBTQ friends, back to the atonement, said something like, the atonement isn't meant, you know, one day I realized the atonement's meant to heal my broken heart and not change my sexuality, and I kind of like that. Yes, and, and I think, uh, I don't know, if I can talk about the temple or not, but the I never know when I've crossed a line. Go for it. But and actually, a client taught me this once. He 
he wanted to talk about the temple and he wanted to know and and that's not uh, you know it it was good for him because he needed uh, a place to air some of his thoughts on that and and so he's he was testing me and he asked me what I understood about the prayer circle there and and um I didn't understand it and he taught me and now I know this is what I know about prayer that the highest order of prayer is when we are only praying what the Lord is telling us to pray and and so in that event and if we can reach that point of wholeness and um, and truly do that we will not be praying for anything that is not the will of the Lord, but we will be having him join us to give us strength to go and move ahead on whatever our mission is or the outcome is that the Lord wants. And I love that. I, I hope I didn't cross the line. But you didn't. I, it's never left me, and I completely understand from some experiences that that I've had, that that kind of prayer is possible. That just brought a big smile to my face. So thank you. I love that. Let's talk about um, one of the things that you can really help with is parents of LGBTQ that are listening that may just be starting this journey. Um, talk about, you know, just general advice you give to parents and also this question we talked about ahead of time, you know, healthy choice for parents, you know, when their children acknowledge being LGBTQ. It's just kind of a segment of you talking to other LDS parents of LGBTQ kids. Well, I've heard so many stories, many of which I am very jealous of because I wasn't that kind of person. But let's talk about the healthy ones. The and and if if you need help on getting there, Call the Mama Dragons. Get on Mormons building bridges. Call Richard Osler. <laughs> all of us have, call me Marion Bergen. We all have um, helps that we can give you. But the ones that have had joyful outcomes are the ones that just immediately, if a child comes out, as LGBTQ or any of the iterations, you affirm them. You declare your love without condition. Your approval has to be wholehearted because they've already imagined the rejection that they may get, and they'll be so sensitive to any form of rejection, any buts, any conditional. If you can affirm, um, if you can choose just to express love, not the need to change, not any form of rejection, not any denial, are you sure? Are you sure this is, you know, um, it, it's hard. And I think one of the main things that happens in our, our LDS parents is shame, their own shame 
their own need to protect our image, the family, the younger children. How? What is this going to teach them? You know, shame is something that you you feel you are, not feel, that you feel you can repent of. And so if you feel that deep shame, it's not guilt. Uh, don't, don't put the... Now I'm, I'm getting tangled up in my own thoughts here. And so I'm going to go back and uh, take apart shame and guilt. If you feel shame at your child's coming out, you are feeling that it can't be changed, that you are something defective then. Guilt doesn't usually enter into um, a parent's... Well, no, I take that back. I've talked to many, especially mothers, who feel guilty. If only I had done this, that, or the other in a different way, they wouldn't be gay. Now, health, that's not um, healthy guilt. Healthy guilt is something you can repent of. <laughs> and I like that. Yeah, healthy guilt. You can... You can pin it down and repent of it. But if you feel this overwhelming, overarching shame and you shame your child, you are teaching them that they haven't done something bad, but they are something bad and that they would have no way of knowing how to rectify that or how to reclaim themselves from that kind of judgment. And so then enter the suicidal thoughts because the, men or the message has been, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be the way you are. That's the subtle message when we tell them, well, there's good therapists or good therapy, et cetera. When they have anguished over the decision to come out stop there. I really like that. I love what you've taught about shame versus guilt. I very much agree with that. I didn't know that when I was a singles word bishop. Those two words were the same to me. And it was a therapist that taught, Christine's her name, that taught me the difference. And it's awesome. really resonated with me. You don't forget that. You just you? don't forget that. And so that's, and I recognize when kids come out, it's, you know, sometimes the parents do feel shame. I like that where um, you're trying to do the right thing for a kid, but sometimes you're trying to protect yourself and you feel shame for having an LGBTQ kid. And you might say things like, well, it's okay if you told me, but don't tell anybody else. Don't let the neighbors know. Don't let the neighbors know. Don't tell on social media. And I, to your point, I think that's what's teaching is I am embarrassed about this. Let's just keep this between us versus, and some kids may not want to tell a lot of people, but I think that's their decision versus a yeah. parent decision to say, don't tell anybody. But they'll cue off the parents, too. <laughs> yeah, good point. Yeah. Um, so I, I really like that. What would you say to a parent who wonders if their kid is just kind of going through a phase, like, okay, they're, I've seen my kid go through phase, now they're in the gay phase mm -hmm. or the trans phase, um, and this will just pass. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think it's a very common thought, and uh, and I think it could be true at times, um, especially with all the sexuality, the premature sexuality that swirls around our young people from 
every angle, and especially movies and TV, and and if they get into pornography, uh, then then everything is sexualized beyond belief. And so, I I would say we're talking about the whole family here and what kind of communication patterns or links do you have or style do you have with this child? Um, communication is everything. Permission to talk, permission to explore your beliefs, or even if you're that confused about it as a parent, find a therapist that you can go to together and communicate and learn to communicate and maybe listen to what that therapist could draw out of your child as to their confusion or lack of it, if they're very clear, um, you could get a message. And I don't think therapy's the answer to everything, but uh, I, I do think that there are some very gifted people that can help you. Uh, can I tell a little story about Please my do. husband? Yes. When Patrick and Michael were teenagers, and they were really giving mm -hmm. us hell, oh my gosh, I mean, we didn't know what was wrong. We, we didn't identify, but they were into drugs and alcohol and rebelling, and, and I was working in Utah Valley Hospital, so I singled out someone who uh, was very good with adolescents and we talked our boys into seeing him in therapy. Well, the first thing he wanted was for us to be there. Well, his office was in Utah Valley Hospital. And so we're sitting in his waiting room, Alan and me and Patrick and Michael, and I think half my staff came past us as we're sitting there on that couch waiting to see this therapist who was always off time and he was way over time. And I turned to Alan and I said, I mean, I was just getting so uncomfortable, and that tells about my maturity at that age. It's honest. And, and I turned to Alan and I said, do you like everyone looking at us and knowing that we're waiting here to go into so-and-so's office? And, and Alan turned to me and he, he said in his very loving, gentle, kind way, Marion, if our waiting here for this therapist to see our boys helps one person whose needs help believe that going to therapy is okay, then I'll sit here forever. Wow. And that's the way he is. That is a great answer. And Thank you really for sharing that. And it really put me that. in my place. Well, <laughs> that is really a wonderful answer. I remember my own father serving as stake president. We had some difficult family things going on, and and we all went to family therapy. And I, th I thought the humility of my stake president father in this 1970s, he's 88 now and alive. And, and it's, and I've gone to therapy twice in my life because he had the humility and it's really helped me, but he had the humility in those years to do that a little bit. And, um, he's not clinically trained. He's a business guy, but I just recognize. And so those are, that's really that wonderful. So what you're awesome. <laughs> Um, I like your answer to this question of a parent may wonder, is this just a phase my kid's going through? And I loved your answer to 
to go to therapy and maybe before you say yes or no or try to put everything back in the nice tidy box and say this is a phase, I think you need to take that at face value like you're sharing. And I think a therapist is a great idea to help you navigate that. And I love your use of the word communication. And sometimes you do need a therapist to kind of bring out the conversations that need to happen if a kid comes out and shares that. And they can often be more sensitive to the real messages that are being tried to be communicated rather than the message that the parent might be thinking they're receiving. So it can sort a lot of things out. Other advice you give to parents that are listening that have LGBTQ kids that come to your mind if you're just talking to them? Well, it depends on what the questions are. <laughs> True. <laughs> how, to, how to deal with the pain is, is a... The big, parent pain. The parent pain. Talk about that. Pain, Talk about their that. Their own pain. Well, that, uh, I'm going to go back to you. You need an advocate. You need someone that you can, as with any pain, the pain of finding out a child has been sexually abused, the pain of finding out that one of your children are going to get divorced. You know, the pain when our expectations of life are changed or shattered or we feel betrayed. And so I believe very much that we all need close friends, friends that go beyond the surface that we can be ourselves with, that we can tell anything with. And go walking through your pain instead of thinking, being shamed by it, or feeling, uh, as one person quoted to another recently to me, he came to me and he said, well, I was told to just get over it because that was in a, a conference talk recently. <laughs> I, I laugh. I shouldn't laugh. but I laugh too. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's using something out of church to avoid carrying your pain, telling you to get over it. So anyone that is conflict avoidant, pain aversive, doesn't like to express their emotions, they're not the ones that you should be turning to to share your pain. And you're going to have to learn to sort that out for yourself carefully. And then when you find someone that you can really uh, bear your soul to, share your pain, you'll find that someone helping you hold it, sharing your burden, mourn with those who mourn, it'll help you. I, I guarantee it will help you. It won't solve everything. It won't change everything. I also believe that we do have a Savior who will help us carry our pain. And I, I hope that by having an LGBT child, it doesn't shatter your faith in your Savior. Because if you turn away, you'll be turning away from the very strength that could make the biggest difference in your life. And for me, the scriptures often give me messages, tell me about myself, and tell me about the things that I need to know about my weakness and about my need 
and about my need to heal. And so friends, therapists, the scriptures, and prayer are things that come to mind at the moment. That's a great answer. That's probably the best answer that's ever been given on this podcast. You don't like that. You cringed a little bit, Marion, but I think it's it's true. And I think sometimes, and I'm not a parent of an LGBTQ child, but I'm online with them a lot. There's a lot of pain. And rarely do we talk about that and the grief. And I love your answer to that. And yeah, you kick into parent mode to want to help your kid, but you also have to take care of yourself. And you do. And and it's and we just don't have support groups in the church to kind of for parents to find community to walk this road together. So you have to find informal groups, mama dragons, other ways. Um, and I love what you said about having a friend and the role of that friend. And I I think that's good advice for all of us. Can we be that friend for somebody? the way Marion just described that kind of friend. A um, friend who's willing to receive other people's pain. And hold that pain. I love your use of the word hold and right. and validate. And to me, that doesn't... Yeah, I learned as a YSA bishop that I could heal the YSAs by just kind of holding their pain sometimes and validating their pain versus explaining it away or saying it's all for their good or I'll get fixed in the next life, it kind of diminishes it. it sometimes quickly dismissing it like that, whether well, that's doctrinally true. It puts up a wall because yeah. you're preaching to them. Why does it put up a wall? Yeah, explain well, that. Okay, because if someone has trusted you enough to share their pain and it goes unacknowledged, it's like you've refused their gift. and And instead... You've substituted uh, preaching, a scripture. Some of my friends, I, I'm a difficult woman sometimes, and, and, and we all I'm are. impatient. I'm old, and I, I don't want to hear some of these things. And some of my friends now, if they move into a preaching mode at me when I'm trying to share, I stop them. <laughs> And I say, don't do that. Don't do what? I say, I just need you to listen to me and help me understand myself. Because a person listened to starts listening to themselves in a different way than they did. And they might even start shifting their perspective of themselves or of what's happening to them. It is so healing. It's called empathy. And Richard's a very empathic person, and that's a gift. My mother-in-law was a naturally empathic person. My own mother had no empathy at all. <laughs> <laughs> we all have different gifts. <laughs> we do have different gifts, but but it is called empathy, and that is part of being Christ-like. And I'm quoting Elder Maxwell. <laughs> I miss Elder Maxwell. I think he'd be 90. I looked him up the other day to figure out how old he is. He'd be somewhere around 95, 96, I think. I'm not sure if that's correct, listeners. So if I misquoted, I just think he'd... Yeah, but um, there's a loss there, yes. I love what your advice is to um, parents of LGBTQ and you bring your clinical expertise and your parenting expertise. And that's very helpful. 
On this last question, and maybe we'll do some others after this, what would you like to see change in the culture of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Well, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, because I see all these movements kind of in backfield. <laughs> if you're a baseball player, I don't know what it's called if you're a football player, because I'm not a football fan. <laughs> but in the backfield, we, we have the Richard Oslers and the Marion Bergens and the Mama Dragons and everything. And you've got a daughter, Sue Bergen. And who's I've really got a daughter, Sue Bergen. Who I know of. And if you're listening, Sue, you're awesome. And she, she's uh, very articulate, and so we have all these movements, and and we're just trying to make a difference, one step at a time, one person at a time, I should say. But my dream, my goal, my very highest wish is that in a general conference talk, we would hear from someone who is an LGBT ally teach the the many uh, what's the word I want committed members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints three things one that these sexual orientations are not a choice we don't know why and that has been said but it needs to be said many times. We don't know why they take place, but they are not a choice in most cases. I know people are yelling and screaming right now, but I know so-and-so, but, 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 but on the whole, they're not a choice. They were not a choice in my son's week, I can say that. Number two, that if you are an LDLS parent in this circumstance, of having an LGBT child or newly coming out, that you do not reject them, that we are taught to lead with love. Love is the answer to everything. And if you can dis discover your own need to not, or no, I'm getting wound up here again. If you can just give the plain, and simple answer that you love them, it will ripple out from there and you will have a healthier child, a child whose worst fears were not confirmed by their coming out to you and feeling rejection or having to take care of your feelings first. Um, so... Number one, it's not a choice. Number two, do not reject. Only love. Love is the answer. And number three, do not turn to reparative therapy. Whatever you know it by, don't turn to that. It doesn't work. And I have many ways of explaining that it doesn't work, but just take my word for it. It doesn't work. They'll take your money, they'll make you promises, but it doesn't work. And I used to try to do that therapy. I love that. And I've everything you just shared there, Marion, is within the doctrine of our church. So if we gave that if that conference talk happened, it's that's not a change of doctrine. It just changes the culture to 
to be able to see LGBTQ people as their own people. That was part of what's what really shifted for me as a singles ward bishop and having a couple gay men. I just kind of looked at LGBTQ people as this outside threat to our church. And then when you have stewardship responsibility for a, or parenting responsibility, then it shifts and you see um, LGBTQ people as our own people and, and a way to learn to talk directly to them as needed members of the body of Christ and that their orientation is who they are. Well, and it would give the members uh, permission to accept their LGBTQ children and to make a place for them because too many of the families feel that I have to choose between my church or my child. And with the child goes the family. And so those who choose their child and feel therefore they're not choosing the church, a whole family goes out of the church, as many have done. And that's the tragedy, losing the blessings of, of our, our wonderful church in all its glory. It, it's, that's the tragedy to me. That is a tragedy, and we do see entire families leaving the church. Um, I know of many. And you know of many, and it, and we lose. Um, do you want to talk at all about your husband? He's alive. He's not with us today. He has um, obvious, and you could talk about his role at BYU and the good work that he did and anything else you want to share about your good husband, Alan. Well, um, Alan was and is uh, a very accomplished person in the role of mental health, in the realm of mental health. Um, he actually has a book that may be breaking um, records. He, he tells me, he's 85 right now, and he says, I want to live uh, till my book comes out, and it's called The Handbook of Clinical Psychology, the book he's waiting for, it will commemorate 50 years of this book, and it will be its seventh edition. That's awesome. And that's, he is just an awesome person. And he has lived through all the things that I've been describing in this podcast. And he is um, as regretful as I am about our lack uh, our denial, our lack of sensitivity to the real circumstances uh, of our of our gay sons and of LGBTs. So I'm just going to say that, with the help of our dear daughter Sue and myself, he has written an apology to the mental health profession, and to the religious uh, culture that he was converted to when he was 19. And I'm just going to read two paragraphs from that, that I dearly want people to listen to every word, because this is a very uh, professional, academic scholar saying these words, I regret, Alan writes, being part 
of a professional, religious, and public culture that marginalized, pathologized, and excluded LGBT persons. As a father of two gay sons and a grandfather of a gay grandson, I've been given a personal education through them that has been painful and enlightening. And then another paragraph, he says, to the general public, I say, Richard likes this part, stop, listen, learn, love. To myself, my posterity, my colleagues, my fellow church members, and my political leaders, I say, apologize and compensate those of God's children who have been afflicted by our treatment of them when they should have been embraced and loved. Give them their rightful place in society and in church so they may be nurtured and progress in their spiritual, social, and professional lives. And he says more, but I'm going to stop there saying, I love that man, and I love every word that he has offered in his apology, and his life has made up for any, uh, the good in his life, in my opinion, as his wife has made up for any mistakes. I do love him, and thank you, Richard. Um. It's really tender for me to read, to hear that. I think we all, I mean, there's a side of me that wants to say he shouldn't apologize, that, you know, I sense the totality of your husband's life as he sits before his maker, you know, and all the lives he helped that his maker will just put his arms around him and love him. But I guess in a way, all of us, as we um, look back on our mortal life, we'll be aware of things that we wish we had done differently. I, I assume every person on the planet would love to apologize for things they've done. What a good point. And so maybe it's a bit of humility and healing. Um, it's wishful thinking that <laughs> certain people would hear it and and, and, and join him. I, I do, and I think it's a great sign of spiritual maturity and thoughtfulness and to be able to look back on a life and and share something like that and apologize. I I think it sets an example. It's a wonderful example for others and teaches us, just like your husband did in waiting for that therapist, <laughs> um, about the bigger picture and the humility that that took. And so thank you for sharing that. It's a, you know, I'm touched by it, and it helps me want to do better to recognize things that I've done and, and want to do a better job of acknowledging that and templating that for others. Um, I think of, you know, I don't know who the greatest strict, um, my Book of Mormon or Bible or New Testament, Old Testament hero is of that, but I think of Nephi sometimes in the Psalm of Nephi where he kind of talks just, you know, honestly as a mortal, and he's done all these great things as a prophet, but then he kind of says... Nevertheless, I'm beseeched by my weaknesses. And and he kind of recognizes without getting into a lot of detail that he hasn't been perfect. 
Absolutely. And, and right now, you know, I'm a gospel doctrine teacher, and I've loved coming to Paul and his teaching. Tell us about Paul. With the state that I'm in now, you know, with the learning I've had. Well, Paul's one of the things that I'm going to say this lightly because I never think of leaving the church. But Paul's story and that time in the church is one of the things that one of my anchors that keeps me anchored in the church. And um, when when you read right now, I'm reading Frederick Farrar's hefty book on Paul the Apostle. And and he wrote that in like 1865, you know, wow. so it's, it's the old fashioned flowery language. But he brings to life the real sins of Paul and what he really did against the Christians and the deaths he caused and the suffering and the terror he caused in them. And then when we turn to the epistles and see the depth and the breadth of Paul's knowledge of Christ and that yet he is an apostle in spite of what he did, I, it just it just fills my soul with admiration for this man that I, I never really realized before from just reading pieces of the epistles. <laughs> and, and I just, I also glory in the fact that he had contention with Peter and the council in Utah, in uh, the, the Jerusalem council. I've read extensively on that through some Sperry, um, Institute papers that restore my faith in the fact that the what should we say what should we call it the the chaos and the turmoil in the church at this time over just I mean there's so much good going on but I'm just going to focus on the LGBT question and those of us who are deeply involved in it it, it is pretty confusing and chaotic. That kind of situation and scene happened frequently in Paul's time. And I think when we go into the New Testament or the Old Testament and see it in its purity and past all the nonsense that's in it that probably shouldn't be there, we'll see that there's always been permission from God to work these things out, to figure them out. And he doesn't just come down out of heaven and give us the easy answers. He lets us stumble and cry and beg and worry about our posterity. He lets all this happen, but he also gives us a choice of finding peace and joy. And it's there for me in spite of everything I've said today, I pray every day that I can feel the joy of the gospel and some of the time I feel it. <laughs> Thank you. So honest. I love that closing segment with Paul. Um, I'd love to be in your gospel doctrine class on a fall day down here in St. George <laughs> after a Saturday playing golf at my favorite golf course and go to your city school class on a spring day. That would even be better. Do you have any final thoughts, Marion, you'd like to share with our listeners? 
Mm. You know, I that was my final thought. Look for the joy. Ask for the joy. Beg for the joy. Um, thank you, Marion Bergen, for being on this episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. On behalf of all of our listeners, we love you. We love your heart. We love you raising all these kids and all the work you've done and your honesty and your vulnerability and your mentor the mentoring that is to all of us of how to be a disciple of Christ and being in this space of for decades of a faithful Latter-day Saint and supporting our LGBTQ members. You're a pioneer for a lot of us and thank you for what you've done and what you continue to do and Thank you, our listeners. I think a lot of our listeners would just love to come out of wherever they're hearing this and put their arms around you. And I get to sit across the table for Marion, and I'm going to give her a big hug when we sign off. So thank you for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler.